Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 31 this morning, excuse me, this evening, as we continue our way through the book of Psalms, these wonderful hymns and prayers and songs that are inspired by our holy God. Psalm 31, the choir master of Psalm of David, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame, and your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your namesake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. But I trust in the Lord. I'll rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. You have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the streets flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me. They plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of the enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness. You have stored up for those who fear you, and work for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them. From the plots of men, you store them in your shelters from the strife of the tongue. Blessed be the Lord. He has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had sit in my alarm, and I am cut off from your sight. But you have heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord, you may be seated. As many of you may already know, I grew up in a Dutch Reformed church, and in that church, our catechism was the Heidelberg Catechism, not the Westminster Catechism like we recited tonight. And Heidelberg is a, a very good catechism, a very faithful one, and we use it on occasion here, especially that first question and answer, what is my only comfort in life and in death? Well, I I was in seminary. I had a Presbyterian friend, as I was becoming Presbyterian, who would always give me a hard time about being Dutch Reformed and coming from Dutch Reformed roots. And he would say to me, us Scottish Presbyterians start with our duty, our chief end. And you duchies, as he would call me, you duchies start with your chief comfort. We're all about what to do 
and you are all about how you feel, which is highly ironic, my wife would tell you, because most Dutchmen, at least the ones I grew up with in the Midwest, are not very in touch with their feelings. Or if they are, they do not talk about them. But nevertheless, that catechism does start with what is our chief comfort, and yes, what is our feeling. When I read Psalm 31, I'm reminded of this first question and answer of the Heidelberg, where that wonderful answer to what is my only comfort in life and in death, this is my only comfort in life and in death, is that I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's that idea of belonging to the Lord in life and in death. That is the key, isn't it? That if you belong to the Lord, then there is a commitment there that the Lord is committed, the Lord is covenanted with us, and therefore we can commit ourselves to him in all things, in blessing as well as in trouble, in life as well as in death. And that is why the psalmist David can say in this passage, into your hands I commit my spirit, for you have redeemed my faithful God. And so as we look tonight at what it means to commit ourselves to the Lord and what strength and protection and, yes, even comfort that that truth provides for us as believers. See it in two points, the instability of life and then the sure refuge of our God. First, the instability of life. Most commentaries, as you can imagine, try to understand what was going on in David's life that would prompt him to write such a psalm or such a prayer as this. And this particular psalm gives no context in the inscription, so we can only guesstimate of what was taking place. We know that there were enemies that were against him. We read that in verse 4, that they have taken out a net which they have hidden for me. In verse 13, it talks about those that whisper and scheme and plot at David's demise. And we know that this was very serious. We could even say that there was a death plot that was going on. It seems like his enemies would love nothing more than for David's life to be taken from him. And we know that there were many times in David's life that his life was threatened. You can think all the way back to being a boy and standing in front of Goliath and the Philistines. Or you can think about when Saul was trying to find him and attack him, and he had to hide in the desert and in caves. And you can even think as he came to be a king that he had those that were enemies, those other nations that no doubt were not so thrilled that his kingdom and his throne were were being established. And you can even think of the time in his own household when his own son, Absalom, was trying to take his life. All of these would fit this context of this psalm. And we don't know which particular one it was, but nevertheless, we know that David was very familiar with threats and with schemes and with plots and those that were trying to undermine 
both him and his very life. And it was of great concern to David, as you can imagine, as any of us would be. There would be that fear and that worry and that aspect of being scared, of being in such a situation as this. And so the prayer, the prayer that David offers up here, is one, that the Lord would be his refuge. The Lord would be his righteousness. So, O oh Lord, would you hear and would you rescue? Would you be that which I know that you are, a rock and a refuge and a fortress, that you would save me? And that's how it begins, doesn't it, in verse 1 and 2. In you, O oh Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock, a refuge for me, strong fortress to save me. And so the actual reason why David is crying out is not as important as what is causing him to turn to the Lord. And we could say that as David thought about his circumstances, as he thought about his life, he was in a very precocious situation, one of instability and of being and feeling insecure. And so where is it that he looks? Well, David obviously cannot look to anything earthly. He can't look to his enemies for strength or for comfort, for those that are seeking his demise, those that are whispering and scheming and plotting and persecuting. In verse 18, we see that they had lying lips speaking insolently in pride and in contempt. They have no concern for David. They are only concerned for themselves and for their own pride and for their own well-being. But it is very interesting that David also doesn't look to himself. That would be the worldly wisdom, wouldn't it? That when you feel insecure, when you feel fearful, you're to, to look within, you're to find this resolve within yourself, and that you're to be strong and you're to to be a man or to be a woman, to be a strong man, to be a strong woman, to stand up and to not be fearful. But that is not the biblical wisdom. And that is not the wisdom that David gives because he cannot even look to himself. Look at it, verse 9. It says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body. Also, David says, I am in weakness. I'm not in strength. I'm not a strong man. I can't bolster myself. I can't bolster my resolve to to do better and to make something out of this situation. In many ways, it is out of my hands. Verse 10, he says, my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. Is my life is filled with troubles. Seems that way, doesn't it? Oftentimes, you may feel like you get out of one trouble only for another to replace it, or another two or three to replace that other trouble or that other worry that you once had. Moses in Psalm 90 puts it this way For all our days passed away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. 
the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Those may not be words that you perhaps want to write on a consolation card, but they are not untrue, are they? This life is hard and it is fleeting. As Moses says, 70, or if you have the strength, 80. And that is relatively a short span when especially you think of all of eternity as one that is now over halfway there. I can say to you, it goes quickly. And no doubt those that are even older than I will tell you that the remaining years even seem to speed up and not go slower. And second, this life has little comfort to provide. And yet there is much hardship say otherwise is not honest or truthful. And all of this doesn't take into consideration the worst part, which is my own sinfulness. And that's how he ends there at verse 10. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I have no strength because I am a sinner filled with iniquity. And my bones literally waste away. We know that the wages of sin is death. And that from the moment of birth to the time of our death, what David is saying is true that in many ways we are wasting away because of our sin, because of our fallenness. And so, how is it that we as sinners, those that are sinful can make anything right or anything righteous. Children, it would be like you making your bed. Your, your parents tell you to, to make your bed and you have this beautiful bed with these clean sheets, with these nice white sheets, these white comforters. But the problem is that you have dirt and mud all over your hands. What is going to happen if you make your bed? Are you going to make that bed better or worse? Well, in some ways, you might think you're making it better because you're trying to make your bed, right? But your hands are going to make it a mess and much worse. And that is like mankind's best effort to make this world a a better place. It helps in some ways, no doubt. But in many ways, in the end, we only make it much worse. And so in the same way, I cannot be my own Savior because I'm the one that is in need of saving. I cannot be my own Redeemer because I am in need of redemption. And so I cannot look to myself. And David says the same about himself. Notice also what he says in verse 11. I cannot even look to my friends or my neighbors or my acquaintances. He says, because of my adversaries, I cannot. I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the streets flee from me. Those that are not technically 
against me as my enemies are, but those who should be my friend, those that should be on my side, I cannot account for them either. I cannot count upon them. He says here, they see me in the streets and they do not come and run and meet me and greet me. It says that they flee from me. Why? Because they don't want to deal with my troubles. It's hard to walk with someone that's going through affliction and hardship. It's much easier to walk with those that are in prosperity and in blessing. Oftentimes because we might not admit it because we selfishly get something out of it. If they are being blessed, we are being blessed with them. But a true friend is one that sticks with someone even in hardship, that walks with them a mile or even two in their shoes. But David says, I can't even look to those that should be my friends, that should be my acquaintances. They go in the opposite direction. Why? Because, again, they don't have time for our problems. They have their own problems, they would say. It's often like what that saying is often said, I don't have time for your problems today and tomorrow's not looking very good either. And what it says in verse 12 is sad reality. It says, I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. And I am no longer remembered. I am like one that has gone to the grave. Why? Because I am broken. And in brokenness. It should not be true, but too often is an accurate statement of neighbors and friends and acquaintances, those who should be there but are not. All of this demonstrates, does it not? Where on earth can we go? Where can we flee? Where can we find refuge? There is none. There is no earthly provision. There is no earthly solution. And that might be true. You might recognize that. You might be going through such a time like David is going through, that there is great instability in your life. But perhaps you are not. But let me ask you, how stable really, actually, is your life? You might think, I'm, I'm good. Life is good. I have everything I need. But isn't it true that we are just one diagnosis, one recession, one layoff, one death of a loved one away from our life being turned utterly upside down. And that could happen in a moment. And it's true that we are never stable in this life. We're never in control of all circumstances. We cannot even control the present, let alone the future. Life is always unsure, so we need to look to something other than ourselves or others. And that is why David, throughout this psalm, turns to what is our second point, the sure refuge of our God. Since there is no stability in anything in the world, we must look outside. We must look outward and upward to God himself. And that is the central thought, that is the central plea that comes throughout this psalm. And not surprisingly, in the center of this psalm, I think we have the very answer that we are looking for. We find it there in verse 14. He says, but I trust 
in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. There it is, isn't it? David is saying, I have all of these enemies with all of their schemes. But yet, O Lord, I trust in you. I am in weakness. I am in distress. I am in grief. My soul and body and bones waste away, but yet I trust in you. I have no friends. I have no acquaintances, those that care for me, and yet I trust in you. That is the heart of the believer, isn't it? That the whole world can be against us. All circumstances can seemingly be upon us and in opposition to us, and yet we are to trust in the Lord. I trust in you, O Lord, even when the world would be against me. Because even if the world is against me, I know that the Lord is for me. And therefore, I can trust even when I cannot see, and especially when I do not understand. Yet, we can trust. We can have simple, childlike faith. That's what the Lord calls us to, doesn't he? A child does not understand all situations, does not understand all circumstances, and yet they trust. Oftentimes they trust their parents and should be able to trust their parents. I know many times my wife and I, we were going through various circumstances. We'd take such comfort and delight that we would enter into our children's rooms, especially at night, especially when they're sleeping, and see them sleeping so peacefully without a worry or a trouble in the world. We needed to be reminded in the same way. We need to trust our Heavenly Father in that same way and have a childlike faith. How is it that you can have such trust in the face of opposition? Well, as he says there at the end of verse 14, you are my God. We can trust God because he is God. And what kind of God is he? Well, that is what the entire psalm talks about. He is a rock. He is a refuge. As he says in verse 2 and 3, he is our foundation of stability, our strong power for protection. In verse 3 and the end of that verse, he says that he leads us and he guides us. That is the prayer of the righteous, isn't it? Lord, I don't know which way is up. I don't know which way is down. I don't know if I should turn to the left or to the right. I do not know. The only thing that I do know is you, O oh God, and so you be the one that leads and guides when he does. In verse 6, he says, I hate those who regard worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. There it is once again. It goes on to say, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. That idea of this steadfast love, if you were with us in the Sunday school class this morning, you know what Hebrew word that is. It is that word hesed, hesed love, covenant love. God has made covenant with us, and therefore we can rely upon God because he has made promises to us. And that is not some cold compact. That is not some cold contract. That is a loving covenant, like a 
loving relationship, like in a wedding, like in a marriage. God has made covenant with us, and therefore he loves us with such a love. As you would love your children, as you would love your grandchildren, does not the Lord love us more than we love our children and our grandchildren? Of course he does. And therefore we can trust in him. We can rejoice and be glad even in the midst of afflictions, as he says, even in the midst of the distress of his soul, because in those afflictions, in those distresses, we know the love of God in a much greater, in a much more fervent and practical way. He is not hard or careless. He loves us with a love that does not swerve, a love that perseveres when few do. He says, you've seen my affliction. You've known the distress of my soul. These things are not hidden from you. You are not cold or callous. And so he goes on to say in verse 19, how abundant is your goodness. You have stored up for those who fear you, for those who take refuge in you. How abundant your goodness you have stored up. We may not always see the goodness of God, but it is always there. And it is stored up, as he says at the end there, it is being worked out for those who take refuge in you. Even if we see no goodness, we know that God is still good and good all the time, and he will show that goodness in abundance in the days to come, in the kingdom that is yet to come. That is our God. Full of wisdom to lead and to guide. Full of love to care and to provide. Full of goodness to take refuge in so that we may abound. But look again at that key thought. But I will trust in you, verse 14, O Lord. I say you are my God. Luther said that the gospel is in the pronoun. This case, in the possessive pronoun. He's not just God. He is my God. He is our God. And so these characteristics of God are not true of some abstract God. They are true of our God, of my God. And they are therefore applied to me. That his protection and his care and his goodness is not just some idea for someone somewhere. It is applied to me in my circumstances that he is this rock and a refuge and supports. And that is why we can look to him. That is why he is the only stability in a world of instability, in a life of insecurities. That is why we can commit ourselves to him. That is exactly what the psalmist does. In verse 5, into your hands I commit my spirit. I commit the whole of my life. Spirit here, I think, is in part meaning the, the whole. I commit the whole of my life. All of it belongs to you. And what a blessing that is to give ourselves to the Lord. Not in part, but in whole. Not just in death as many do, but also in life. And we are to 
commit ourselves, belong to the Lord in all of life, so that if you live or if you die, you belong to the Lord. This psalm really coincides with what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, excuse me, 2 Timothy 1, chapter 12. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him. What makes that statement even more profound was that most likely Paul was going to be dead in just a few days. 2 Timothy was that last epistle that he was able to write. And he is saying, I know who I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep me today and tomorrow and in the days to come because of that which I have committed to him, which is the whole of who he was. How is it that we can commit ourselves to the Lord? Well, it's because he has committed himself to us hasn't he? Because God has proven it, hasn't he? By sending his son. And we can rejoice in this even much more fully than David who had limited revelation, but we have the fullness of God's revelation to us that the Lord, out of love and goodness, out of that hesed, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because your sons, Paul says, God has sent the spirit of the son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. We are sons and daughters because he is our father. And he sent forth his beloved son. And the father as you know, turned his back upon that beloved son, so much so that the son had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The son endured the wrath and the shame and the guilt and the pain so that we can be redeemed. So we can commit our lives to to God because Christ committed his spirit even unto death. We read these words and. Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. See, the Lord Jesus Christ used this very psalm to speak forth the words of his redemption, the words of his trust, even to his Father, even as his Father laid his hand of judgment and chastisement upon him, the Lord Jesus Christ still committed himself, still trusted in the Father, even in the midst of the worst torture and death that anyone could ever endure. And that is why, beloved, we can commit ourselves to him, both in body and soul, in life and in death, because he is our faithful Savior. John Calvin says this, this indeed ought to be our principal argument for overcoming all temptation, that Christ, when commending his soul to the Father, undertook the guardianship of souls of all the people. You hear what Calvin is saying? 
Christ gave up his soul, gave up his spirit so that he could care for our soul and for our spirit. And if he would do that much for us, will he not do it for us in all matters? Will he not redeem and rescue the the whole of us? Indeed, he will. And that is why this psalm ends with praise. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. You heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. And then this wonderful exhortation. Therefore, love the Lord, verse 23, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, abundantly repays those who act in pride. But be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Indeed, we can love the Lord, as this psalm calls us to do, because he first loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And therefore, he perseveres and preserves the faithful. And so therefore, weary and worn soldiers, journeymen, those in pilgrimage to Zion, indeed, be strong. Let your heart take courage, all of you, as you wait for the Lord. The Lord has and will show himself to be faithful as he already has again and again. And in this, we can have great comfort in life and even in death. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm, this wonderful testimony of your faithfulness to David, your faithfulness to us, in the midst of tribulations and afflictions. And Lord, would we turn to you again and again. May we say with David, we trust in you, O Lord, for you are my God. What a pleasure and a joy it is to call you our God and our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you hear our pleas? And would you now also hear our praise to you for being such a God? We pray this in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.